Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Walt Rakowicz. I'm the former CEO of Prologis and retired a number of years ago. And now I sit on a number of corporate boards, which I look forward to talking to you about. And I also wrote a book last year, which was published by the name of Transfluence. It's all about making a transformative influence in the lives of those that you lead. And I'm really excited today to be on the Inspiring Leadership Show. And I welcome you to this show and our host, Jonathan Bowman Parks. Jonathan? Thank Perks. you. <laughs> That's okay. Walter, thank you. It's great having you here. It's a mouthful of a name. And uh, it's both my parents' names. Um, Walter, you, you um, are recommended to me by someone I have a lot of respect and time for. And that's Jeff Nishwitz. And Jeff and I, he did a podcast with us uh, a while ago. He is just such a, a lovely guy and big hearted, but also he's asked me some profound questions, which have really made me think. So I know he's very skilled at what he does, but he said, you know, if you want someone who's inspiring, get Walter on. So Walter, welcome. It's really good having you in the series. Tell us a bit about, um, firstly, um, when you were the CEO of your own company, Prologis, and then what the, the different things you're doing now, and then also the book. I want to hear a bit more about that. And then we'll go back to childhood. Okay. So first of all, currently, um, I, as I as I mentioned, I um, I sit on three public company boards, um, and I'm also on my university board. For those of you um, from Penn State University, from Penn, from the great state of Pennsylvania, um, and and I also chair a, a, an interesting board. Uh, the the organization is called Colorado Uplift. It's one of the largest inner city youth um, programs um, in the United States for that matter. And we, you know, we go into schools and we educate kids about things that they don't necessarily learn in school, leadership and character and what success looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a really fun group and I've been involved with that group for almost 20 years now. Um, and I also spend time, um, as I mentioned earlier, blogging and uh, writing. And I wrote my first book last year, Transfluence. Um, and Transfluence is all about transformative influence. It's not about you. Um, it is about the influence that you can have on the lives of other people um, in this world. And I think that that's the essence of leadership. Um, prior to that, I was the CEO of a company called Prologis. And um, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more about um, what that meant. But Prologis, so you know, um, so your listeners know, um, is actually the largest landlord in the world. It um, owns more square footage um, than anybody. And basically the company is in the industrial real estate business. And so we build and we lease warehouses uh, all throughout the world um, in uh, Europe and Asia and the United States, South America, you name it. And, um, and so the company today owns about $120 billion in real estate. It's traded um, on the New York Stock Exchange in the S&P 500, very large company. And as I mentioned, the largest landlord in the world. And I had 20 years with that company and we'll talk a little bit about what that meant um, as well. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of my background. And I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to um, talking a little bit more about it with you today. 
No, well, it, it's it's lovely, and you've triggered so many thoughts in my mind. That the first one is uh, my mother, when I was about twenty, gave me the book "How to Win Friends and Influence People" by Dale Carnegie, written in 1912, and uh, I, I sort of remember some of it uh, reading it. But of course, only now have I realized that having taken a, a deep test that I'm dyslexic. So that um, so reading, writing, spelling and uh, arithmetic uh, were, were a challenge for me. So I listen to about 120 to 160 audiobooks a year now. I just soak it up. But, but listening to Dale Carnegie again, it's just brilliant on influence. And, and I just wondered, did he have any influence on you as you wrote that? Was there anything back there that, that uh, you, you tapped into that resonated? Uh, no, I, I've heard snippets of Dale Carnegie uh, or, or the book over time. But um, no, I, you know, the most influential people in my life were my parents. Yeah. And if, if we really um, go back to it, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I look at my parents. I, I like to I like to talk about the fact that I hit the parent lottery. Um, you know, my grandmother was pregnant with my mother when she came over from Italy um, on on a boat. Um, she didn't speak any English, nor did my grandfather. And she had no job in the United States, um, basically started with nothing. And my dad's parents, very similarly, were immigrants from Poland and from white Russia. And, um, you know, he and his sister lived in a one bedroom apartment until he was a teenager. Again, they're, they're immigrants and they also started with nothing. And so my mother picked vitamins on a, on a, um, an assembly line for general nutrition. My dad was a, an assistant manager for Kmart. Um, so, you know, we never really had a tremendous amount of financial wealth, Jonathan, but we did have a tremendous amount of wealth of love and support. And looking back on it, uh, that's what it took. You know, I had hardworking parents. They were very positive about life. And most importantly, they appreciated people for who they were. And um, they treated people in accordance with the golden rule. They treated people the way that they would want to also be treated. And, mm. you know, when you think about the essence of leadership, that's really it. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, um, I, my parents were just really influential to me and, and, um, and they became the platform, if you will, behind um, how I decided to lead when I, mm. you know, when I moved forward in my career. So it's almost your foundational beliefs were a combination, first of your faith, because you're a strong Christian. I, we had a discussion right. about this, but also the values your parents from both Italy and uh, from Poland and white Russia sort of brought back and were the essence. Is, is that, do I understand right? Absolutely. And I just watched them. You know, I watched my father, I watched my mother every day. Um, and it wasn't always the things that they said, but mostly it was the things that they did. And watching them over the years um, gave me a real, uh, a, a real understanding as to how um, I needed to treat people and mm. uh, the importance of people as you lead. Mm. And of course, you had lots of chance to practice that um, when you were the, the CEO. Is there a, a particular moment that stands in your mind of someone you learned from as a CEO uh, who you'd like to call out? You know, yes, there is. Um, so my, um, my background real quick, and I'll, I'll lead you up to this, is um, I, after I got out of college, again, Penn State University, I... I um, worked for four years for Price Waterhouse, which was, you know, I put my green eye shade on every day and, and it was a wonderful place to learn 
Um, and But I didn't really want to be an accountant. And I was fortunate enough to get into Harvard Business School and went there for two years and met all kinds of future captains of America there. And uh, looking back on it, I'm not really sure how I got in academically, but I did. And I found myself digging constantly, asking myself, well, boy, I hope it's not brilliance that's going to make me successful in life because uh, I'm definitely the bottom of the rung in this school. But um, and, and but anyway, I got out of school and I, I took a job with this company called Trammell Crow Company. And it's a real estate development firm in Los Angeles. And it was there that I met my uh, probably my most favorite boss. Um, I worked for a partner in that company um, and he was full of life, um, fun. Um, and at the end of the day, what he cared about most was the success of what he would call his children, um, all the people that worked for him. Um, he was generous with his time. He wanted us to be the best we could be. And he was a big influence on my life. And he was smart, but you wouldn't say, hey, the first thing walking away from you wouldn't say he's a smart guy. You would just, um, you would just say, wow, I mean, I feel like I'm really important, you know? And, you know, I, I realized that success in life is not necessarily defined by brilliance. Don't get me wrong. It's nice to be brilliant. It's got good to be brilliant. But sometimes the, the most brilliant people um, will let that get to their head through pride and fear. I talk things I talk a lot about in my book. And when we talk a little bit about Prologis, we, I'll get into that. Um, but it, mo most importantly, it was defined, success, if you will, was defined by how you treated people. And I realized that people will kill for you if they love you, but they won't love you unless you love them first. Um, unless you show them what it means or what they mean to you, show them that you care. And I've always found in my life that, um, yeah, I mean, I can look back and there's been, you know, I've made some really good business decisions, but the fact of the matter is mostly my success was because other people um, were in my life and they helped me to be successful. And, and they helped me to be successful because they wanted me to succeed. Um, and they wanted me to succeed because I wanted them to succeed. <laughs> and it's really not that complicated. I, I love that. I'm just um, making some jottings and some notes. And, and if, you, if you think back, so parents were very influential. This, this, this boss who saw you as, uh, and others as his children uh, was, was very influential. If you look throughout the whole of your life, what were what was one of the proudest moments or the moments who gave you great greatest joy? And what did you learn from that? And yeah. then would you follow that with what was perhaps one of the darkest moments in your life, personal or work, and, and what you learned from that? Sure. Um, so I talk about this in my book. Um, and and that this sort of leads me, this uh, the job with Trammell Crow, I was there for 10 years and it led me to this experience. Um, which became the darkest and then, and then the proudest moment in my life. So I took a job um, with a company called Prologis um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and originally, uh, the, the company is really a startup firm. 
And I took a job as an, in an operating role um, in the Midwest region, and then ultimately was promoted to be the chief financial officer of the, co of the company as the company grew, and then became the president and chief operating officer of the company, which is the number two position. And by that time, I don't know, the company had 30, 25 or $30 billion in assets. So it had grown to a fairly large company. And this was over a 15 year period of time, an amazing growth growth story, really a darling on Wall Street. Um, but by 2007, and, and, and I'm probably one or two years into the job of being the president of the company, number two uh, job behind the CEO. And it was one year before the collapse in 2008, things were beginning to look um, very different, Jonathan. Um, our, our culture was changing. We had a great culture for the first 15 years. From the outside looking in, we looked really good still. Our stock price was at an all-time high. But from the inside looking out, we were a disaster waiting to happen. We had uh, my partner, who was the CEO of the, of the company, had been in the position for a few years. And it was a position that he was getting very comfortable with. Um, and he was one of the most brilliant people that I knew, back to the brilliance that we were talking about. But he had real management shortcomings um, and the culture was beginning to reflect it. And it was a low point in my, my career. I, I like to say that he was a boss that didn't listen because he was always right. Um, he was a boss that didn't trust because he had all the answers. You know, he was a boss that didn't delegate because he wanted the credit. Uh, boss that perhaps didn't communicate as well as he could have because he was too busy and a boss that was obsessed with making himself look good. We've all worked with those kinds of people. And frankly, I'm not saying that I didn't have my issues as well, um, but it was really hard for me to work there. And, and the interesting thing is, I think his actions reflected some of the things that the company did. I mean, our, co our company was not a, a, a culture of openness and transparency. Instead, it was a culture of insecurity and arrogance. And um, we were top of the game. I mean, we are, again, our stock price trading on an all-time high. We're the largest in our industry. And yet, I just felt like something was wrong. And um, we were acting in silos, um, not communicating as a management team. We started making bad business decisions, over-leveraging the company. Um, uh, I thought we made some bad uh, people decisions. And... and um, so anyway, I went to the board of directors and I said, look, I, I think it's time that I exit stage left here. I, I, I just got to get out of this. I don't want to be a part of it. And the board wanted me to try to kiss and make up with the CEO. And it was just evident that what he wanted for the company and what I wanted for the company were two different things. And so by the end of 2007, just prior to the market crash, I decided it was the right thing for me to leave the company. And I, man, I felt, I felt isolated. I felt you know, helpless. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. And it was a company I had loved, but I just couldn't work there anymore. Um, at that point in time, the stock was trading at about $72 a share, which equated to a market cap of, I don't know, 20 to $25 billion, something like that. And um, I left and for 10 months, I just, didn't know what to do, but I was watching the market and it's 2008 and remember where we were in 2008. And 
just you know to put everybody's mind into context, the whole S and P 500 turned out to be down 40 percent, close to 40 percent in 2008. So it was a it was a crazy year. But our stock price went from $72, and then I'm watching it in March. It's at 60, and and then I'm watching it in June, and it's it's in the 30s, and then in July it's in the high 20s, and then September it's in the 15s, and October it's in the 10s, and by November 1st it's trading at below five dollars a share. Wow! And and the company was the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500, and uh. I got a call from the board of directors in November of 2008, the first week. And they said, uh, you were right. We made some mistakes. We need to, we are, we have made the decision that we're going to part with the CEO. Um, and we'd like to know if you are willing to come back and run the company. Wow. And by that time, the company was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, we had, I don't know, order of magnitude, $10 billion of debt coming due in the next 12 to 18 months. And, and we had no idea how we were gonna refinance it. And probably the bigger concern was our people. I mean, they had very little confidence in leadership. They were watching the stock price as well. Uh, they lacked trust they, and all of that needed to change. Um, and I, you know, reluctantly, I have to tell you, I said, you know, well, how long do I have to make this decision? And the board said, uh, like overnight would be really good <laughs> because we are on the verge of bankruptcy and we need somebody to come back and run this thing. And I decided, I talked to my wife and I decided that I would uh, go back and do it. I knew it would take a Herculean effort to turn it around. But I would say to answer your question, uh, that was probably a low point in my life, in my career. And, and I would stretch that out over the 10 year period of time. A, not knowing what I was doing, what B, watching the, the company that I had helped build um, over time, um, you know, uh, go down. And, and, and it was just weird for me to be taking the place and going back to a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy and asking myself, did I really have the chops to do this? Um, and I, I, did, I wasn't sure. I mean, I had never done it before. And um, you know, that was definitely the low point in my life. Um, and, 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 and the high point, I would say, um, was it took four years. Um, and we successfully, we, and I say when we, not me, but the management team, who I was blessed enough to lead, um, really turned the company around. Um, and I think we had a tremendous attitude um, I think we treated people the way they needed to be treated. And our people turned the company around. Um, not without a lot of gymnastics, but we did. And um, the high point for me was after four years, I decided to really retire then. And um, I was able to um, walk away um, after we had merged the company with another company and walk away in retirement and feel really, really good about the fact that we saved jobs and we influenced people, um, and we ended up surviving. That's, that's a fabulous story. Uh, and also the rawness of it. And, uh, and that time I know I knew well. And indeed, you know, we've got another recession now. Um, what do you think will happen to the, the sort of property market with what's going on, particularly people working from home much more than in offices, but yet there's going to be a lot more 
warehouses. I mean, my daughter works for a firm called yeah. Ocado Group, uh, and they they are a big UK company that does a lot of warehouses and temperature control and food and stock moving around. Robotics. They've got all sorts of robotic arms. Yeah. Some of the, some of their warehouses have no people in at all. It's just all robots. Uh, yeah. What what do you think will happen to property? Um, you know, uh, retail retail um, property and personal you know, in big cities, people's flats and things like that. What do you, what do you think is going to be happening? Well, I, I, it's hard to predict out more than a couple of years because things change um, and you can never see the change around the corner. But I would say the one thing that I've never seen is, is, is such a barbell approach to real estate um, with the haves and the have nots today. Never seen that before. So all real estate isn't going to be hurt um, as you, as you mentioned my old company, your daughter's company is actually thriving today because when you click on, you know, you click on something and you want to want it ordered, it doesn't come from a retail center. It comes from a warehouse. And so the warehouse business is booming. Um, the flip side of that is that office space um, and retail centers, and to a lesser degree, maybe in the short run hotels have been hurt by COVID. And the real question is um, how long? Will we get back to that form of life um, or will some of these spaces simply get repurposed into other things? And that's the thing that's never obvious that you can never really see what the repurpose looks like, right? Mm. Malls mm. might look a lot different than just shopping in the future. Um, office space, you, maybe we will go, won't go 100% back to office space, but maybe we need more space per person. Um, yeah. So it's just hard to say, right? But right now it's a barbell approach where on one hand, warehouses and data centers doing incredibly well, right? Retail and office kind of on the verge of a squishy looking market for the next couple of years. Housing booming because people are working out of their houses or they're looking for second homes. Um, apartments, real question mark with, with, the, um, with the, the millennial bubble now moving through and now wanting to buy houses versus rent, rent houses, hard to say. And, and, and of course, it's market specific too. So that's my answer. Um, I, I, I don't know. The answer is I don't know, but I do know that I've never seen it in my career in such a sort of have and have not kind of state. Yeah, very interesting. So uh, thank you for that. Going back to as you were growing up, let's say we met the 18 year old Walter with all that you know now, written your book and doing a multiplicity of different things. Penn State University, interesting enough, I think set up by a Quaker. Uh, Penn, I think being, uh, and Pennsylvania. Oh, no, that's the University of Penn. That's uh, Penn, that's University of Penn. That's the University of Pennsylvania. Okay, forgive me for, for getting that wrong. Um, but all that experience you've had, what bit of advice would you give to the 18 year old Walter if you met yourself again and went back in a time machine? I would say life is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. I wanted to sprint at 18. I wanted to sprint when I was 25. But, um, and also life is not about you. I, I think it's just so easy when you're in your 20s. Life is about you. You're trying to, you know, and, and to a certain degree, there's an insecurity about it because you haven't yet succeeded. And so you're hungry and you want to succeed. And I get, I get all that. I was that way. Um, but, when you're hungry and when you haven't succeeded yet, but you're trying, you can't mow over people. And, and I see that happening 
a lot. And so the way that you interact with people and the way that you treat people matters greatly in your success. People help, help you succeed. Um, you aren't going to succeed. People help you succeed. Yeah. And, and so treat everybody with dignity and respect, even if you don't agree with them, treat them the way that they would want to be treated. Mm. And, and I really think there's, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's that simple because obviously nothing's that simple. Um, but if you do somehow, some way, seems like you get hooked up in the right avenue, in the right path. Yeah. Um, at least I did. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's what I would say. That's the bit of advice I would give to people. That's, that's really great advice. And if I go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, uh, Walter, we begin with MQ, Moral Quotient. We've been talking a lot about this and we talked about it before we went on air, about your foundational values, your faith, your family, upbringing, uh, the experiences you had. Um, if, if there were two or three values you lived by, what would they be? And, and what have you done when you let them slip? How did you get yourself back on track? Yeah, and you'll find this in my book. So it's interesting you'd ask me that question. Um, so let me go, go to a story first. So um, when I took over at Prologis, um, and, you know, the company is, you know, again, not doing all that well. <laughs> um, I, I had a, a call from an investment banker friend of mine at Morgan Stanley, and he said, you know, Walt, um, front page of the Wall Street Journal talked about you a couple of days ago. It's not looking good. He said, um, you know, I know you probably need some moral support. Would you like to talk with um, the CEO of Morgan Stanley? His name is John Mack. And oh, wow. John, was, John was revered in the investment banking business as truly one of the better, if not um, one of the top two or three leaders. Um, and um, I, I said, sure, I'd love to. And so I get on the line with John and I said, John, I, can you just tell me you know, and by the way, in 2008, Goldman Sachs was supposedly going bankrupt. Morgan Stanley was going, you know, maybe <laughs> going bankrupt. The Fed and the Treasury Secretary were talking about jamming banks together. You might remember all that. So imagine what he's going through, right? And um, he was nice enough to spend some time with the client and uh, basically said, uh, I said, John, how are you dealing with this? Because you guys might go bankrupt, right? And he said, well, Walt, I don't think we're going to go bankrupt. But he said, um, I, I said, well, how do you treat your people? during this time. And he said um, to me, I treat people in accordance with the three H's. And I said, okay, well, what is that? And he said, um, the best leaders are humble, they're honest. And he said, in this day and age, a banker needs to have a sense of humor. And I thought about those words. And I, I, it was one of these things where they kind of dwelled on me for the longest time. And I think what he really meant by humor is I didn't really, I never saw myself as a humorous person, but I think he really meant relatability, right? That you walk into a room, you crack a joke. Why? Because you want people to relate to who you are. You want, you know, open them up a little bit, and, right? And, 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 and the real word is human, humanness, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's heart. It's, it's, it's how you treat people with a heart, right? It's, it's not just being funny, but, and so, um, I, I thought about that and I call it my three H core and I write about it in my book. I, I write about what real humility be, means, what real honesty means in a corporate sense and what treating people with humanity or with the heart means. Okay. Mm. And as it relates to slipping, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about humility and vulnerability. 
because I think it's really, most leaders have trouble with that word humility. Um, they have trouble because of the way it's defined, but in reality, uh, humility slash vulnerability is really a powerful thing. So um, it was about one o'clock in the morning and I was sitting there with my finance team. And uh, one of the people on the finance team said, well, Walt, I think you, you I've got some bad news. And I said, well, what's the bad news? And he said, well, he said, I think we are going to need to file for bankruptcy protection because we're ready to blow our covenants on about six to $10 billion in bonds, okay? And I said, well, when's that gonna happen? This is around Christmas of 2008. He said, I said, he said it's gonna happen probably in the first quarter. And I got white as a ghost. I walked down the hallway and I saw this chair in the distance and I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna faint. I gotta get to that chair. So I, I beeline to the chair and I don't get there in time. And I fall and I hit my head on the corner of the desk and split my head open, okay? And I'm laying there on the ground for what turned out to be about 10 minutes. And then I woke up, I looked around, I had no idea where I was for about 30 seconds to a minute. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh my God, all these people are still in the room waiting for me. And um, so I walked back, I you know, sutured my head up best I could in the bathroom, walked back in the room and I said, let's talk about this bankruptcy issue. And my CFO looks at me and he says, no, Walt, let's talk about that huge lump on your head. How did that happen, right? <laughs> and here's the deal. I was hired to be the CEO of the company and I was hired to quote unquote, turn around the company, right? And you know what? I didn't have any of the answers. And I, walked, I looked at everybody in the room and I said, you know what, guys, I'm hired to do this. And you know what? I, I have no idea what to say. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you have the answers, not me. If we're going to turn this company around, you're going to do it, not me. Okay. And I was the most vulnerable person in the world at that moment. And my, uh, one of the people on the team said, you know what, well, let me, let us think about it and let's come back to this room in a week and let's see what some of the answers could be. And you know what? They came up with the answers that saved the company, not me. And I realized that sometimes humility and vulnerability can be a powerful tool to use as a leader, okay? You, you want real communication to happen in your company? Be vulnerable. It's like, and, 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 and I, I tell leaders that all the time and leaders don't want to do that because they're not hired to do that. That's not what they're hired to do. They're, they're hired to be in charge, quote unquote. Well, that's true. There are times you are char uh, charged with being in charge. And then there's some times when you just gotta listen. And you got to realize that you don't have all the answers. Other people do. That's a powerful thing. And that's it, and it, it took that slip to understand it. Yeah. I, I, I will always remember that story. Uh, it will stay with me always now. And, and I, time and again, with the different CEOs and the leaders I know, the message is only the strong can be vulnerable. And uh, when I ask a leader, when was the last time you personally were dead wrong? 
when I get one, it goes, hmm. Okay. <laughs> it could have been 1978 or, or 1985. Right. Do you know what, John? I don't really make mistakes. I go, that's the problem. But when others like you and many others that have the humility, the humanity, the humor and the heart, which I, I like, the, 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 I call them the three hums too. It, it really resonates. So that what you've said is part of a tip I had from another uh, visiting professor at the business school I was at in, in London. And Roger talks about his three hums as well in his book on integrity, which is uh, you'd like as well. Um, he calls it ethicability. And uh, the good leaders say, I, I make mistakes frequently, hopefully not the same one. But, um, and then the next question is, how quickly do you realize? And then how quickly do you resolve it? And those are all three great questions. I think from a Harvard Business Review article from your days at Harvard. Yeah. I love that. I will always remember that. Let's go on to the next one. Um, PQ is about meaning and purpose. Your Dharma, uh, as they call it in India, your vocation, your calling. Yeah. What, what, as you look back over your life, and uh, as Steve Jobs said in his Stanford address, you know, you can only make sense of your life by looking back and joining up the, da the dots in, in reverse. At the time, you can't see the journey you're going to be taken. But now you've profoundly reflected on your life, your business life, your time as a CEO, and written your book, which I definitely will, will listen, uh, read. Have you got an audio version yet? Yes, there's a, there is an audio version. Okay, I will listen to it on... Uh, it's meant <laughs> on, on, on Audible. It's meant to be. Um, but um, as you look back, what's been your life calling and, and your sense of what gives you meaning and purpose? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, the older I get, Jonathan, the more I realize that um, it's not about me. Um, I read a great book a while back um, called Halftime. It was written by a gentleman by the name of Bob Buford. And he talks about how the first half of your life is, is about building your career and putting away money for your kids. And, you know, to a certain degree, it's very inwardly focused towards you and your family. And, and, and it makes sense. Um, and the second half of your life is, is his um, um, mantra is take your career from success to significance. And I, I really took heart to that book in my forties and early 50s. Um, and to a certain degree, the book that I've written, Transfluence, um, manifests that, that thinking. Um, it's about being influential, at least it is for me in my career at this point. It wasn't early. I'll, I'll be honest. It was about putting away um, all of my acorns, my wife and my acorns, and making sure that I could get my kids into college and, and all those things as well in my 20s and my 30s. But um, when you reach a certain level of success, you begin to realize that life actually is not really about you and your legacy becomes more important and the influence that you have in the lives of others becomes more important. And, um, you know, helping people to become the best they can be. That's what, that's what gets me juiced in the morning. That's what gets me up. Um, yeah. And that's really what trans transfluence is all about. Well, that's going to be really interesting to read that. And, uh, from my discussions with neuroscientists, they say that in our 50s and certainly our 60s, and I'm just about to approach 60, I don't know how, how old you are, Walter, but um, that our brain becomes more pro-social. We realize that we are all terminally ill, we are all going to die, and that in the time we have remaining, it isn't about us, 
it's about the difference we can make about like you're appearing on this podcast you're sending the lift back down for others to all right. the people who'll be listening those 200,000 people in 55 countries are listening to this podcast they will benefit from that you're not doing this for you um, and you've written your book so people can benefit from that yes you, you may get some money from I, I've written two books I, I certainly have not lived off the profits of those. It was not one of those Wall Street um, number one, but maybe yours will be. But the, the point is, it's about paying it forward to other people. And I, and I love that about you. Let's go on to the third area of inspired leadership and what makes high performance and potential in our research, which was health quotient, the mm -hmm. mental and physical health and well-being. Didn't used to be in many leadership models. It's uh, It's been a key part of ours for the last... Uh, six to eight years and and now it's coming into its own everybody's going top three things digitization esg diversity inclusion and equality and mental health and you go right. at last hello but not just mental health physical health so so how do you keep yourself physically and mentally fit and, and if you wanted to share how old you are i'd be fascinated in these challenging times and how do you pick yourself up when you let your physical and mental health slip so um a couple of things. Um, I, I, I think about health in terms of three different areas. One is, as you mentioned, physical. The other is mental, and the third is emotional, which is as important than the first two. So, or first, yeah, first two. So, let me just talk about them. First of all, oh, I'm 63. Just so you know, I'm. You look good for 63, sir. Well, thank you. That's nice to say that. Um, so, I traveled in my job. Um, between 250,000 and 300,000 miles a year on an airplane. So I was constantly all over the world. Um, and so the physical part of it, the first part was critically important to me And about, uh, I don't know, I'd say maybe, well, it's probably been over 20 years ago. Now I was in my early forties. Um, I, my wife was getting a little bit concerned um, that I was starting to put on a little bit of weight and she got me a personal trainer and that was actually the best thing I could do. And since then, I've been really very active. I, I work out um, between four and five times a week, um, once a week with a personal trainer, two times a week cardio. And actually I do two to three times a week um, resistance training, weightlifting. Um, yeah. I just think it's critically important that we keep muscle mass up in our body. And I play a lot of golf. So I'm very, I'm an active person. I, I still bike and, and the like. So there's the physical aspect, there's the mental aspect. I actually read a, a decent amount. Um, I, you know, I'm not um, a speed reader and, and probably some of your listeners will read more, but I probably read 15 to 20 books a year, I would say. Um, there's, you know, and, and most of them are business books, but numerous other periodicals. And, and as you know, I blog and I speak um, about leadership and and you know, being on the three corporate boards and my university board and inner city youth board helps me to kind of keep my mind active. And so while I retired from the company, I wouldn't say that I'm retired at all at this point in time. Matter of fact, I'm pretty busy, but just doing a number of things to keep my mind active. Um, and I think reading helps. Yeah. For me, the big thing is the emotional side of it. And you mentioned before my faith, I, uh, I spend a considerable amount of time uh, with my creator. And um, we all might define who that creator is differently. I don't know, but um, I get up, I'm, I'm an early morning riser. So between the hours of five and seven, um, pretty much every day, I, um, I'm, I'm either praying or I'm reading script, scripture. Um, you know, he's my rock in this insane world. I mean, it is an insane world. And, um, and he really becomes my platform 
my immovable platform. Um, there's sand that's all around my feet and it's constantly moving. Um, and, 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 and as it shifts, I need something that I can rely on and that I can, I truly believe in. And um, I, 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 so I spend a lot of time uh, with my creator and, and it actually, it, it, I don't know, I think it just helps to support my emotional well-being as well. I think that's so important, the, the physical, the mental and the emotional. And, and in some ways, spiritual intelligence uh, is linked to PQ, what gives your life meaning and purpose. Uh, and I think if you have a clear burning why, you can cope with any what or how. Uh, but, but back to your point about humility, humanity and humor, um, I, I want to tell a joke against myself in that um, when I was with the Scots Guards, I was based in uh, Cyprus and uh, having a nice tour. And I thought, I do, I do have stru struggle reading. My speed of reading is very slow. Uh, I told you later, I, I only later years realized I was dyslexic, but I just thought it was me just not trying hard enough. So I got on teach a book from the library called Teach Yourself Speed Reading. And I had it on my bedside table and I'd you know, read, it, read a, a chapter, a, a page or two, but then I'd often fall asleep. And, and a note came in, which was, wasn't in an envelope. It was just sent into the officer's mess and it was lying on the desk where the mail was and someone rifled through it. And there was a load of guffaws going on and the, more people gathered round. And I came and they said, Jonathan, listen to this. It's from the library. Dear Captain Perks, your copy of Teach Yourself Speed Reading is now two months overdue. <laughs> You've been fined ten pounds for late delivery of your library book, and I just thought they put that in the in the sort of what they call the lines book of funny stories and things like that. But yeah, teach yourself speed reading, and it was late uh, going back. So um, now at least I'll be able to listen to your audiobook, and it won't be late. Uh, back onto emotional intelligence, another component of uh, the Inspire Leadership Compass. Uh, you, I've already sensed, have a huge amount of emotional and social intelligence, being able to listen to yourself, manage yourself to read others and, and manage that emotion because you can't control it, and then read the environment you're in, the ecosystem you're in, and then as best you can adapt to it. How did you learn those skills? And, and how, do you, how do you advise people who are very bright? You talked about people like the CEO who was super bright, but he didn't have those emotional and social intelligent skills. He was not using his emotions intelligently. How, how do you think people should learn skills of EQ? Because they, they can if they're open to learning. Yeah, I, I like to say, and I talk about it in my book, um, uh, asking, uh, watching and listening. Um, I, I think it's, I, I, I would say a couple things to your listeners. One, number one, I think it's important to surround yourself with good people. Um, you actually become the person that you surround yourself with. And so you always want to surround yourself with, with great people. Um, and, and that requires a certain level of humility and, and vulnerability um, because sometimes those people are better than you and you have to, and, and, but that's good because they'll teach you um, how to become better. I believe, I believe that everybody should have some personal board of directors, um, two or three people that they can, bounce ideas off of not necessarily in the business, but outside of the business who they truly respect and who they're willing to call up from time to time and ask questions. I believe uh, that every leader should have a 360 degree evaluation where their peers um, 
as well as their subordinates, as well as their board or whoever is above them, evaluate them. And there's so many evaluations coming in that he or she can get a pretty good idea of the job that they're doing. I'm a big believer in coaching. Um, I, I, I will tell you that um, a coach um, highlighted some things, some flaws in my leadership um, journey that helped me. And, um, and I'm also, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an avid reader. And, and one time I went to um, scripture and I started reading the Proverbs. And I wrote down and committed to memory, um, not all of them, but some of them, 75 Proverbs in the Bible, which you know, kind of were lessons as to how I should lead. And um, so I think there's a plethora of different things you can do but I think it's all centered around asking and listening, which requires a certain level of, there's that word again, humility and vulnerability, um, that it's, it's not, you know, that, that you don't have all the answers. I talk also a lot in the book about fear and pride. I, I think those are the two problems that leaders have. The, the two biggest problems are they either fear something or they're too prideful and it causes them to look inward and I think that's the kiss of death. Um, I think people, the best leaders that are out there are those that look outward and look towards what other people are doing and saying and um, ask, again, listen, um, and not think you've got all the answers or not be fearful and not be willing to talk to somebody about um, you know, what you can do better. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's um, a lot of what drives me. Brilliant. And, and you've so inspired me that thus far that I'll um, send you a link for the uh, the 30th of this month to get you on the uh, the Zoom uh, collection of CEOs. How about 30 CEOs who come together to share wisdom and experience? We're talking about brand, reputation, image, impact, 360 feedback. You know what people think of you, and I think you'd you'd love that group. And and if you do them all the great service of joining us. Um, I'll talk to you more about it, but I think you've got okay. some wisdom to share with those who are still serving as CEOs and still learning. So um, pa pass on the baton. Um, the next one is CQ. We change it from IQ, which is, you know, it, bright people is fine, but it, it isn't the thing that defines people so much, particularly these days. CQ, cultural intelligence quotient. It does involve, you know, decision making and things like that, but it's more adapting to different cultures. And this is underpinned by diversity, equality, and inclusion. And, and my question to you in all the world travel you've done in this global company and all the stuff you've done since writing a book, how have you learned about different cultures and adapting to different people? Because you know how, how someone in America might in a, in a meeting, you might ask them a question, they'll put their hands up, maybe in Japan, they wouldn't want to do that or in a, another African country or somewhere else. And, and the way the French are is very different from the way the Dutch are and the way the British are. Um, the Dutch and British, because of the kings coming together, have a lot of similarities. But um, what, what would you say about culture and, and, and understanding about different cultures and, and people's differences? Well, I think um, a couple of things. I think uh, people that have curiosity, um, a certain level of curiosity, um, can solve that issue. And I think it's important to have a certain level of situational awareness. I, I would always go to a meeting and, and especially when I was in a different country and begin to ask myself, what's the interest of the person that I'm meeting with? Because it's not as obvious 
as what the interest is of somebody that I'm meeting with in the United States, for example. Um, but I think if you're curious and you ask questions and you have a certain level of situational awareness about you, whereby it's, again, it's not about you, but uh, what's more important is what, what is everybody around you feeling? Let me tell you a quick, really quick story. Um, so when I, you know, one of the, I love to go to Japan, absolutely love it. And I probably made, I don't know, at least 40 trips to Japan over a course of a 10 year period of time. And they, uh, the, our Japanese colleagues were some of the best employees that we had throughout the world. Um, and, um, you know, you get there at about four o'clock generally in the afternoon, get off the plane, do a quick workout and then go out and eat sushi and then um, drink sake. And then you get up the next morning um, for, you know, your meeting. And so we were out eating sushi one night and uh, the, the person who ran our Japanese um, operation watch, was watching me actually dip my sushi, you know, in, um, uh, in, in, in the sauce, you know, that, whatever that's, that, that sauce is called, and, and literally dip the whole thing of sushi and bring it back and it would be dripping before I put it in my mouth, you know? And it was obvious to me that he was just really irritated about something, you know? And I said, well, Mike, what is it that you're irritated about? He said, Japanese, when they take sushi, they just dip lightly in soy sauce and then put it in their mouth. <laughs> and, and, you know, just little things like that, right? And was driving him nuts that I was doing this. Yeah. And I'm glad I asked because I'm not sure he would have said and told told me. So there's all kinds of little cultural things that happen, right? Mm. And, and I think the people that are curious and that truly care about the situational awareness of the things going on around them and the interests of other people, um, put that before their own interests, I think will do really, really well at cultural intelligence. Brilliant. Um, then the last three we've got is uh, RQ, resilience, uh, quotient, uh, then uh, brand, which we talked a little bit about 360, and legacy, which you've also talked about. But just very quickly, um, in, in the remaining few minutes we've got left, uh, top tip you'd give about resilience, a top tip about personal brand, and a top tip about legacy. Well, top tip about resilience is that um, adversity is your best opportunity in life. And so you must embrace it. Too many people run from adversity, but adversity leads to perseverance. Perseverance builds your character and character builds your hope. And I used to always tell my people that in the organization. And remember, we were a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy, so we were going through it. I kept saying we need to persevere because we're gonna make it through this and this adversity is our greatest opportunity. And so I, I truly believe that. What was the second one? You have to uh, brand, brand, reputation, image and impact, a tip on, on personal brand and reputation. Um, well, I, I'd like to think that my brand is being positively influential in the lives of other people. I believe that um, 360 degree feedback is critically important in your brand. Um, and sometimes you have to course correct. I was told one time by a coach that my empathy scores could be higher and it just about crushed me um, because I was all about making an influence on people and yet I, I wasn't showing that I was an empathetic leader. And so I think sometimes you gotta ask a little bit, but again, brand to me is about being influential in the lives of people and it will come back to you um, yeah. if, if you are, if you care about them. 
And yeah. the third one, legacy. Le legacy, what would you like your legacy to be? I suppose you I would mentioned like my legacy that I changed the lives of other people for the better. And then I went home to see the Lord. Mm. Wow. Wow. And the last three questions that I've, I've got, I'm interested in executive teams. You've, you've worked in a few. You've seen toxic teams. Uh, you described some of it. And you've seen high-performing teams. How do you take a toxic team, uh, you had to do this, and, and make it high-performing? Because it could just be one person makes it toxic. It could be the way the leader ran it, that it went toxic. But how do you take a, a, a toxic team and make it high-performing? Through, through transparency. Yeah. Transparency is one of the most important things that a leader can have. Um, many leaders shy away from cultural vipers. They don't want to deal with a cultural viper because they can't afford to lose the cultural viper. A lot of times a cultural viper might be really, really good at their job. And so they won't deal with the situation that the elephant in the room is everybody else in the organization is looking at it and saying, well, why does this leader keep this person around? He or she is just crushing the culture. And I think it's through transparency. It's through brutal transparency that a leader shines, which is dealing with the elephant in the room um, even, even though it's the most difficult thing to do. Yeah. And, um, there's two guys, Lane Ballone and, uh, Stephen Kuhn who've written, written a book, uh, Unleash Your Humble Alpha. I think you'd quite enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they're both going to appear as guests different times on the podcast. And one day, if I can afford it, I might go to Peru with them to Machu Picchu. And, um, it's really a sort of, it's a retreat kind of thing for, for people. So if you're up for that, Walt, come and, come and, come and join me. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll do it, we'll do it next year, but, um, they talk about hit honesty, integrity, and transparency being really crucial. And, and you've, you've touched on all those things. Um, thank you for that on the executive teams. Uh, final two questions. Um, what would be your favorite book on leadership? You, you read a lot, you, you tell me already, but if you were to pick one on leadership or character or neuroscience or mental health uh, that you've read recently, I mean, apart from the Bible, because I know that's a, it's a good, it's a great read, um, which one would you go for? Well, there's, I'm just going to say two, two more other than the halftime that I mentioned before, but I love Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah, I, I do too. I just read it last year. Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't read it earlier in my career uh, because I think it's just so good. And then um, Rick Warren, who was a pastor, wrote, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And if you want to talk about um, the importance of creating meaning in the lives of other people, which I believe is really important as a leader, I think it's a great book. It's trying, yeah. trying to find your meaning in life. Yeah, I think I have read that and I, I do agree with you. I, I've certainly known Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is oh, yeah. a fav favorite of mine. And it's up there, a little tiny thin book on my on my mantelpiece, easily to hand. Okay, um, if, if you do once again, uh, Walter, your introduction for this last piece, uh, just say, uh, you know, who you are, and, and as you did your introduction before, that would be great. And what your favorite top tip in about two minutes would be, a bit of bit of wisdom for people. And then we'll end up and I'll have a chat with you when the show finishes. But uh, over to you for your top tip. Well, I think it'll be very, um... I think it'll be very short. I don't think it will take more than 30 seconds. Um, my practical advice would be this, uh, be thankful and be humble. Um, each day you need to ask yourself what you're grateful for and always ask God 
to walk beside you in your journey. If you do those two things, I believe you'll be imminently successful in your life. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Walter. I've really enjoyed having you on the series. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating. We could have talked for a long time and we're gonna talk more. We'll get you sharing your wisdom on our weekly session, if we can get you along. Um, but uh, thank you and um, stay, stay on the line and we'll chat further, but good to have you on the show. Great to be on. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.